Last week I shared with you that as Christmas approaches, uh, there are a number of things that I do with my family that we do together that get our minds right this time of year. Uh, one thing is we, we listen to Christmas songs while we ride in the car, go look around at Christmas lights or driving to go visit family for the holidays. We'll do that. We also have uh, certain uh, devotionals that we'll read, uh, story Bibles we'll read about the Christmas story, and, and of course, uh, the Christmas account from Matthew and Luke's gospel, a, a number of things like that. And uh, over the years here at the church, we have, we have studied those passages of Scripture, those go-to passages in Matthew 1 and 2 and, and Luke 1 and 2, but, but we're changing it up this Christmas. We are looking at the Psalms of Christmas, this Christmas, okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 97 this morning. Psalm 97. Last week, we looked at Psalm 96. This week, Psalm 97, Lord willing, next week will be in the next Psalm, Psalm 98. Okay, These Psalms are, are often uh, selected and singled out by certain churches this time of year. They're read during the, the Advent season, the season when, when we as, as, as a church were focused in on the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, the anticipation of His second coming, which, which these psalms certainly are, are about as well. And uh, also certain expositors, they like to preach from these psalms in December for good reason, so hopefully you will learn more of the reason why this morning. Psalm 97, we, we said last week that while the book of Psalms is found in the poetry section of our Bibles, within the book of Psalms there are various kinds and types of Psalms. And Psalm 96 and 97 and 98 are what are called psalms of praise. Praise psalms, okay? Praise psalms were written and are meant to be sung when times are good. In, in a praise psalm, the psalmist is expressing, I'm good with God, He's good with me, things are good in general, and so I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to call for others to worship Him. Sometimes there's a, there's a local call to praise of the people of God, to praise God, and at other times, there's a universal call to praise, right? And we saw that universal call to praise in Psalm 96. The praise psalms follow a very simple structure, so this will help you in identifying praise psalms, which there are a lot in the book of Psalms. Praise psalms begin with a call to praise, and then you have a reason for praise. Why are we to praise? It gives the reason. And then there is a further call to praise, okay? Very, very simple structure. Really will help you. We see this again in Psalm 97. Psalm 97 begins with a call to praise. Look at verse 1. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Another universal call to praise. Why? Why should we rejoice? Why should the coastlands be glad? Here's the reason. Verse 1, 
Because the Lord reigns. Verse 6, because He is righteous. Because of His glory. Verse 9, because of His supremacy. He is exalted far above all gods. Verse 10, He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 11, He sows light for the righteous, joy for the upright in heart. That's the reason for praise. Then this psalm ends with a further call to praise. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. So that's a more specific call to praise there, right? The righteous are called to praise the Lord, God's people. So this is another psalm of praise. And in this psalm of praise, we have additional instruction given on how we should approach God in worship and why. First, we learn, point number one, we should approach the Lord with rejoicing because He reigns. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Here we have a call to praise and a reason for praise all rolled up into one here, right? The whole earth is called to rejoice. The coastlands are called to be glad. Why? Because the Lord reigns. It's a great reminder for us today as well, right? As in the psalmist day, it's good for us to be reminded of the fact that the Lord reigns. They needed to be reminded of it in Jesus' day as well. It's always been true and always been a source of comfort for God's people in this broken and fallen, sin-stained world in which we live to know that the Lord, He reigns. There is to be joy in the world because the Lord reigns over the world. Our world is not without a sovereign. Amen? Our world is not the product of chance. Amen? The universe is not, as certain radical atheists put it, the abode of anarchy. There is a universal kingdom, and there is a sovereign ruler. And the ruler of this kingdom, this is good news as well, is not some wicked tyrant, but a wise, holy, intelligent, just, benevolent God. The universe is under the government of God, and He rules well. He does. In Isaac Watts' popular Christmas hymn, which is really more than a Christmas hymn, we'll learn next week, come back, Psalm 98, Joy to the World is based on Psalm 98. We'll talk about it more next week, but in that song are these lyrics, He rules the world, right? With truth. And grace, sovereign and good. The Lord reigns, yes, and He is good. And He goes out of His way to make His rule known so that we worship Him. In the psalmist day, the belief among many of the wicked Gentile nations was that there were multiple gods who ruled territorially. 
And when a nation defeated another nation, it was believed that the, the God of the victors was then in power. God has shown and will show through the fall of nations, big and small, through the defeat of nations, through using other nations to defeat nations, that He is not some sort of local deity, limited in scope and power, but is the sovereign God of all. He, he shows in the story of the incarnation of His Son that He is the one who is driving history, not the Roman Empire. God sent His Son at a time when His people were under Roman occupation, not at the height of their power and prestige. This, according to Paul in Galatians 4.4, was the fullness of time. And He uses a prideful and powerful Roman ruler and and other local rulers as pawns in his plan of redemption. He uses a decree from Octavian known as Caesar Augustus that said that the world should be registered. He uses that decree to fulfill the promise he made through the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2 that his forever king would be born in the king's town in David's town in Bethlehem. While Caesar was trying to show the world how great he was and the authority that he has by having all of the people in his, in his empire numbered, God shows the magnificence of his son by lighting up the night sky with angels praising his son. He later sends wise men, magi, the Herod, to announce that they are looking for the one who had been born king of the Jews. And when they find him, what do they do? They bow before him. God shows shepherds on a hillside and later the kings of the earth who reign supreme in his kingdom. Later he would use prominent religious leaders powerful Roman rulers, the prince of the power of the air, the wicked Satan, to as pawns in his plan as well, to send his son up Calvary's hill to accomplish our salvation. He is at work in this way today, believers. In the darkest and most difficult of times, through people both good and evil, through situations both good and bad. God is at work providentially in the darkest and most difficult of times, accomplishing His purposes through His people so that His people would know and rejoice in the fact that He reigns. He has given His Son the name that is above all names, and there is coming a day when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The psalmist says as much here in Psalm 97. Skip down to verse 6. Look at it. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. We will learn in the next point, like we learned last week in Psalm 96, and like we'll learn next week in Psalm 98, that the one who came the first time to save is returning to judge. And when he does, the heavens will confess his righteousness and all people everywhere 
will see his glory. The application for us as Christians, the application for us this Christmas is simple. The Christmas story is meant to remind us that the Lord reigns. God the Son, the Christ of God, came as King to establish His kingdom and to reign supreme in our hearts and lives. And so we're to live out that reality under His rule and reign. At all times, right? Some of our best Christmas songs remind us of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a little bitty baby laying down his sweet head, but a king reigning supreme. That's what the Christmas story is about. And what child is this are these lyrics? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch or keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste, to bring Him loud, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring Him incense, gold and myrrh. Come peasant king to own Him, the King of kings. Salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone Him. Come thou long-expected Jesus, the great hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. This is why King Jesus came. He came to deliver us from sin and death. He came to reign in us forever. He came to rule in our hearts alone. He came to establish His kingdom and to usher us into it and raise us to His glorious throne. Are you a member of God's kingdom? Have you been freed from sin and death? Is Christ ruling in your hearts alone? Is He ruling in your hearts alone? Is He your King? If He is, then spend this Christmas rejoicing in Him because He reigns in you. If not, bow before the King of Kings today. Forsake your sin, trust in Christ, and be saved. Number two, we should approach the Lord with repentance and faith because He is judge. Look at verses 2-5. through five. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes out before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The psalmists, all of them in Psalms 96-98, they're focused in on the great and terrible day of the Lord on His second coming, which will be glorious for those who are His, but awful for those who are set against Him as His enemies in sin. In this passage, the psalmist describes the glory of the Lord in familiar language. He uses the imagery of clouds and fire. What does that remind you of? The Exodus, right? God's presence. 
in the cloud and in fire, right? His presence in the Exodus, His presence at Sinai. The psalmist here describes a destructive storm that is brewing in heaven around the throne of God. Fire is ready to be unleashed from heaven and poured out on God's enemies. Why? Because He is righteous and just. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. On the day of judgment, God will examine the evidence in our lives and He will render the verdict and execute His sentence. Only those whose lives are hid in Christ will stand on that day. Why? Because, Psalm 130, if God kept a record of sins, none of us could stand. There are none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you, O Lord, should keep a record of sins, O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you may be feared. Wait for the Lord. Trust in Him. Right? Our life must be hid in Christ. In verses 4 and 5, we're told the great and powerful earth and all created beings in it will tremble on that day and the powerful and immovable mountains will melt like wax before the Lord of the earth. The psalmist here is using poetic language to show the awesome power of God and the holy, inescapable terror of His wrath. Stephen Lawson, in his commentary on this psalm, says this, Look at this quote. Fire is the unquenchable fire of His wrath, full of the flames of His vengeance to be unleashed on a Christ-rejecting world. Literally, His foes will be burned up like a dry log consumed by His fury. This divine wrath will in the last day burn up all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire world population will be thrown into convulsions. In the day of judgment, the entire earth will experience a monumental meltdown in cataclysmic fashion before the Lord. That is terrifying imagery, isn't it? Some of you hear that and you say, What on earth does that have to do with Christmas? Yes, messages on God's judgment are biblical and essential, but what's the application for us as Christmas approaches? I'll tell you. Jesus came the first time to provide us a way of rescue from His judgment to come. That's why He came. Jesus came because we are sinners. Set against God. We talked about this last week. You hear Jesus is the reason for the season. Really, sin is the reason for the season too, right? Sin is the black backdrop of the Christmas message. It's the reason Christ came. If you miss the message of sin, you miss the message of Christmas. Jesus came because we're sinners set against God. He came. He became one of us so that we could be rescued from sin. He came to make us like himself. C.S. Lewis provides a great synopsis of the Christmas message in this quote. Look at it. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's why Christ came. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ that began at His incarnation and and was completed at His crucifixion and resurrection, we would remain dead in sin with God's wrath set against us. That is true. That is 
biblical. We have said before, while messages of God's wrath and judgment against enemies of God, they're often labeled as being insensitive and unloving. How dare you talk about the judgment of God around Christmas? Graham, what are you thinking, right? We, we view them as being unloving and, and, and just hateful messages, insensitive. But get this, messages of God's past judgment and the message of his judgment to come, they are merciful and gracious acts of love. God's, the message of God's past acts of judgment and the promise of his judgment to come are his mercy. You see that. They're given to remind us the past acts of judgment or to remind us there's a future day coming. The, the warning of the future day of judgment to come, they're given so that we'll be ready for that day. So that we will ready ourselves. Are you ready? His judgment is coming someday soon and that someday might be today, so we must be ready. Christmas should remind us of this. We should, when we think about the Christmas message, be reminded of the work that God has already accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the next work to come, His return in judgment. You realize that we're in the final days? Some of you are like, yeah, I know, it's getting dark out there. No, we've been in the final days since Christ left the first time. He died, He rose again, He ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. And the next step to come is for Him to return. The gospel has been spreading. His kingdom has been advancing. The next major event to come in God's story of redemption is His return. You should be reminded of that at Christmas. As you think of his first coming, the first advent, the first arrival, you should be reminded of the fact that what's to come is his return. He came the first time so that we would be ready for his return. Are you ready? If not, ready yourself today. Forsake your sin. Place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Next point. We should approach the Lord with no rival idols because He is supreme. Look at verse 6 again. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. In that great and terrible day of judgment, all will come to see the Lord for who He truly is and will acknowledge his authority to judge and that he is right to do so and will acknowledge his supremacy over all creation. Everyone, all created beings will acknowledge that, right? That doesn't mean those who have rejected him will be saved. They will tremble as they await judgment. Paul says, again, Ephesians 2, every knee shall bow and tongue confess in that day that Jesus is Lord. In that day, those who have set their affection in created things will be put to shame. They will be just in disbelief that they were so duped to believe that the things of this world could provide the lasting happiness 
and satisfaction that only God brings. Those who have put their trust in those things will be put to shame. The psalmist says, verse 7, all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. In that great and final day, all false religions will be exposed as just that. Man-made lies, satanic-inspired shams, soul-damning deceptions. The last phrase in verse 7 has been interpreted in a number of different ways. What does the psalmist mean when he calls for little g-gods to worship the one true and living God? He says, worship Him, all you gods. Some think he's talking about angels here, and they'll use Hebrews 1.6 as support. But I believe that we get the idea of what he's saying here by looking at the previous psalm, Psalm 96. He's, he's speaking metaphorically here and sarcastically. I believe he is calling for these false idols who are truly not anything anyway. He is calling for them to bow as well down before the one true and living God, displaying the Lord's supremacy over idols, similar to what is said in Psalm 96 where the psalmist says in 96, verse 4 and 5, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. Remember, Elohims, that is, that is little g gods. Elohims are worthless Elohims. That's the Hebrew for idols. You see the rhyming scheme there in the Hebrew. It's lost in the English. But uh, uh, the Lord made the heavens, and that's Yahweh. That's the sacred name of God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see it in all caps, the translator is telling you that the sacred name for God is being used. He is God of gods, right? Supreme. The Lord is to be revered. He is to be feared above all gods. The psalmist is sarcastically and mockingly calling for these idols to worship the one true and living God while still acknowledging that they are nothing but worthless idols. Tremper Longman, in his commentary on the psalm, says this. Look at this quote. The gods should worship God because He is exalted far above all gods. Very simple. And that's verse 9 of 97. Look at it. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. God. If that is true of these little g gods, if they are called on worthless, lifeless idols to acknowledge the supremacy of God, how much more so is that true of you and me? We said last week in our Truth of the Week that God created us male and female in His own image to glorify Him. That is why you were created. You were created to worship. You were created to bring glory to God. And folks, we are called to do that. We are commanded to worship the one true and living God. That's what we are created to do. While we went astray, God made a way for us to be restored to Him in order to worship Him. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. God sent His Son to become a man so that He could make men and women children of God so that they could worship Him. 
Are there idols in your life right now that are rivaling your relationship with God? Have they taken up residence in your heart and life in the place that is reserved for holy God? Can you honestly say that what you treasure most in this life is God? Do you treasure Him? We see idolatry on display at this time of year, don't we? We see it in commercials on TV, ads in magazines, displays in stores. We see it in the craziness of the crowds at Walmart and Target and at the mall as well. And guess what? We also see the futility of those things bringing happiness that lasts in the depression that sets in with people during the holidays and especially afterward. They can't provide the happiness you so long for. I'm not trying to cast a dark cloud over the gifts you have around the tree. Hey, we've got them as well. But everything in its rightful place, those things cannot fulfill that longing you have for happiness long term or lasting satisfaction can't do. Only God can. Good things can become bad things when they become ruling things. You know that? They can't rule you. They can't rule you. God must rule you. The psalmist reminds us here, worshipers of images will be put to shame, while worshipers of the one true and living God will find what they so long for. They will find lasting happiness. It was Augustine who rejoiced in the fact that in God he finally found rest for his restless soul. It's only in and through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that that is found. Next point. We should approach the Lord with gladness because He is righteous. Notice what the response will be from God's people in that great and final day of judgment. Verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. While God's people, Israel, experienced God's supremacy over idols and pagan nations in the crushing of their oppressors and in the restoration of their nation in the Old Testament, His victory over evil, His, His righteous reign was experienced even more so during Jesus' first coming in earthly ministry and will be fully realized at His return. And that's really ultimately what God is speaking of here through the psalmist. He is talking ultimately about the joy that will be experienced by His people at His return. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Psalm 97, look at this quote. Whatever the immediate historical reference might be, the only complete fulfillment of this vision must be the eventual return of Jesus Christ and the reign of Jesus. Only then will perfect justice come to this earth. There is no such thing as perfect justice now. Now, those who are strong oppress the weak. The unscrupulous cheat the innocent. Murderers go free. And the perpetrators of other horrible crimes go unpunished. 
But when Jesus returns, there will be perfect righteousness. The helpless will be defended. Liars confounded. The guilty judged. This will be grounds for great rejoicing by the righteous. We said last week that this great work that Christ will do in the end was started at His first coming. The work He accomplished at His first coming that we celebrate at Christmas is what makes His second coming glorious for all those who trust in Him. Because of the salvation accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, all who trust in Him will be saved in that great and terrible day of judgment to come. The the psalmist says that those who worship the one true and living God, Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem, the people of God, will rejoice in that day when God comes bringing judgment. God has made a way for His enemies to become His children through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. While God is righteous, man is sinful, but praise be to God that His Son is our Savior. He has come to save us. He has accomplished This great work of salvation and a response to Him is necessary. Christ came, He lived, He died, He rose again to save us. He returned to the Father's right hand on high and will return again to judge and condemn and to restore and redeem. We are told as sure as Christ came the first time to accomplish our salvation, He is returning to judge. You can bank on it. His judgment, we're told in verse 8, will be poured out on His people's enemies while the righteous will be saved by Him. So again, Christmas should remind us that Christ is returning someday soon. He is returning to finish the work that was started over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He is returning to complete the work He accomplished at Calvary And we must be ready. Again, are you ready? Are you ready? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting in God's Son alone for your salvation? I invite you, if not, respond to the saving work of Jesus Christ by placing your faith and trust in Him. I am purposefully being redundant. I'm purposefully being repetitive here so that you hear that call throughout the study of this psalm. Believers, I pray that you approach the Lord today with praise on your lips because of His saving work. When's the last time you took time to praise the Lord for saving you? Christmas, the Christmas message, it should produce joy in your hearts and praise on your lips for what God has done. Not only should we be ready for that day to come, we should be worshipful for what Christ has done. That's our last point. We should approach the Lord with hate for sin and praise for Him because He hates sin and saves sinners. Verses 10 through 12. Almost done. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. 
Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. In the final section of this psalm, God's people are called to hate sin and praise the Savior. There are a few reasons for this. One, we are to hate sin because God hates sin. Charles Spurgeon says, We cannot love God without hating what he hates. Next quote. We cannot love God without hating what he hates. Have you become lukewarm toward God? You want to know how you can tell? How do you feel about sin? How do you feel about evil? Believe it or not, again, Christmas should remind us of sin and its effects, which should increase our hatred for sin. Think about what sin and its consequences led our Lord to do for us. Why did Jesus come? What's the reason for Christmas? God answers it clearly. Jesus came because of the fall. He came, He lived, He died because of our sin. That's what Christmas is all about. We live in a world where messages about man's sin and wrath and judgment are not popular, even in Christian circles. But listen, if we don't focus on this message, on man's sin and God's great wrath and judgment, we will never hate evil like we are called to do in Scripture, and we will never truly come to understand God's amazing grace. We will, we will miss the amazing point of Christmas if we fail to understand the important message of sin and judgment. It's knowing what we've been saved from that makes God's grace so amazing, what makes the gift of His Son so glorious, what makes Christmas so special is realizing that without Christ, we are without hope. The psalmist reminds his readers of the amazing grace of God in the lives of his people. He says, verse 10, The Lord preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Not only does God redeem His people from sin and death, but He redeems them from the wicked. He sent the light of the world to light up the darkness he sends the light of His Spirit to shine in all who believe on Jesus, and He shines the light of truth found in His Word through His indwelling Spirit into the hearts and lives of His children. When one repents and trusts in Christ alone for salvation, they receive God's Spirit, they are ushered out of darkness, they're ushered into God's marvelous light, they are delivered from the hand of the wicked. They are given a permanent place with the righteous and glory. And what they experience as a result of all of that is true and lasting joy. The best Christmas songs, in my opinion, are the ones that highlight the amazing grace of God. They highlight the fact that Christ is King who has come to win the victory for us, and they highlight the amazing grace that God has shown undeserving sinners. There are songs that say this, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, 
Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. O come, O branch of Jesse's stem, unto your own and rescue them. From depths of hell your people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Grace. Praise Him for His amazing grace. Call others to praise Him like the psalmist does at the end here, verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Believers, my challenge to you this Christmas is to spend time in worship of the God who sent His Son to save you. In addition to giving gifts to other loved ones this Christmas, give God the praise that is due Him for saving you. Bring Him repeatedly, over and over again, an offering of praise. Rejoice in Him, all you righteous. Give thanks to His holy name. If you are here this morning or listening online and Christ is not Lord of your life, I urge you to respond to Him in repentance and faith today because He is returning to judge. Your only hope of standing at the final judgment is if your life is hid in Christ. You must lay your life down. You must give your life over to Him. Jesus came. He lived. He died. He rose again to save all who place their faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. He took the punishment of sin that we deserve so that we might not have to. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him through faith alone in Him alone. If you are here listening online, not trusting in Christ for your salvation, this is your invitation this morning. I pray you would run to Christ, turn from your sin, look to Him, cling to Him, bow before Him as your King this morning, make Him your Lord, and be saved. Let's pray together.